Good morning, and welcome to this worship service on this beautiful Lord's Day. I invite you to stand and join me in the call to worship, which is printed on the screen. Sing to the Lord, all the earth. Proclaim his salvation day after day. For great is the Lord and most worthy of praise. He is to be feared above all gods. Splendor and majesty are before him. Strength and joy are in his dwelling place. Ascribe to the Lord the glory due his name. Bring an offering and come before him.
Father, we thank you for who you are, for all that you have done. And we come today to offer our praise to you. We know that you are here with us. Be glorified in our worship. Speak into our hearts, our minds, every part of our being. And we ask this through Christ Jesus. Amen. Before you're seated, share a word of greeting with others who are here in worship this morning. Morning, Judy. You see Jackie here? You see Jackie here? great to see all of you as we gather for worship on this beautiful Sunday morning, and we especially welcome those of you who may be guests here today, and uh, we pray that this will be a, a great experience of worshiping our God together for all of us. Uh, just one thing I want to highlight, uh, this, right after the service this morning, uh, we're hosting a, a picnic, uh, sort of back this way, and it looks like the weather's going to be nice, so we'll be outside, though there are some tables set up inside. And uh, this will begin about 11.45. So if you are, want to come and you need to run home and grab some things to come back, or you're welcome just to stay until then. But that's sort of the schedule beginning about 11.45. And uh, then uh, after, after the picnic is done, uh, you're invited to come to the Rapids game and uh, continue to uh, enjoy the day together. We are, um, have been a supporting church for our uh, local Royal Family Kids Camp for the 20 years that the camp has been uh, going on. And uh, each year we spend a few moments on this Sunday before camp begins to highlight the camp and to spend a few moments praying for everyone who's involved in the camp, and we want to do that in a few moments. Uh, Normally at this time, I uh, introduce John Ben Wicklin, and uh, John would come up and, and share about the camp. Uh, last year, uh, John uh, sort of retired from being the director of the camp and has uh, turned that, that mantle over to some others. And, uh, but we, we just thank so much, are so grateful for John and Barb and for their, their uh, commitment to this camp, uh, the time and energy they invested in the last, this past spring. The uh, larger royal family uh, kids organization honored them at the meeting in California and we, uh, we just want to thank them for all that they've done to not just make the past camp successful, but laying great found, a great foundation and groundwork for the camps to come. And uh, so this morning, instead of introducing John, I'm introducing uh, Zach Roan and Nancy Murphy, who uh, this year are serving as co-directors of the camp. And uh, they're going to come and uh, share just a little bit about this year's camp And when they are done, there's a a brief video, and then we're going to uh, offer a word of prayer for everyone who's involved in the camp. Zach, Nancy. It's one of the benefits of being co-directors is you're able to divide and conquer. So um, I'll be leading the the service this morning, and Nancy will be offering the the results of the camp next Sunday. So Henry J.M. Nowen, a Catholic monk and Harvard Theological Seminary, writes in The Life of the Beloved, 
about what it means to be the bread of the earth. He talks about the bread of the earth in an extended metaphor throughout the text and explains that we're to be taken, blessed, broken, and given. And so that's sort of the very first step, being taken. Another word for that is chosen. Christians, now in rates, are often prevented from recognizing their cho- chosenness, which allows them to be taken by God as a result of some internal strife that they, they deal with. Now in rates, instead of taking a critical look at the circumstances or trying to understand my own and others' limitations, I tend to blame myself, not just for what I did, but for who I am. My dark side says, I am no good. I deserve to be pushed aside, forgotten, rejected, and abandoned. Not seldom self-rejection is simply seen as the neurotic expression of an insecure person, but neurosis is often the psychic manifestation of a much deeper human darkness, the darkness of not feeling truly welcome in human existence. Self-rejection is the greatest enemy of the spiritual life because it contradicts the sacred voice that calls us the beloved. Being the beloved expresses the core truth of our existence. At camp this year, I think many of these children probably blame themselves in one way or another. I think that their circumstances put a shade over their eyes that make the sunniest days seem gloomy and dark. 56% of our campers live with a single parent. 25% live with one or both grandparents. Others live with another relative, an aunt, a great aunt, or in foster care. Their situations are characterized by multiple losses, loss of contact with parents, imprisonment of a parent, death of a loved one, family members in prison, frequent moves, loss of trust due to neglect, sometimes abuse, as well as challenges of limited resources, such as no supervision when a single parent is away. You might try to imagine how these children struggle to feel like anyone's beloved. Our Houghton Royal Family Kids Camp tries to give them positive memories and role models to help them see that they are beloved. Our 80-plus volunteers throughout the week seek to extend God's arms around these children to give them positive memories and Christ's love to remind them that on the darkest of days, they are loved. Our many prayer partners send their love and encouragement in a note and in time they spend with God. We want to do everything that we can to remind these campers that they are what our tree name is this year, a chosen one. In Nouwen's framework, it represents the first step in accepting that we are God's beloved. Nouwen paraphrases scripture and elaborates on what it means to accept our chosenness. When he says, I have called you by name from the very beginning. You are mine and I am yours. You are my beloved, on you my favor rests. I have molded you in the depths of the earth and knitted you together in your mother's womb. I have carved you in the palms of my hands and hidden you in the shadow of my embrace. I look at you with infinite tenderness and care for you, with a care more intimate than that of a mother for her child. I have counted every hair on your head and guided you at every step. Wherever you go, I go with you. Wherever you rest, I keep watch. I will give you food that will satisfy all your hunger and drink that will quench all your thirst. I will not hide my face from you. You know me as your own and I know you as my own. You belong to me. I am your father, your mother, your brother, your sister, your lover, and your spouse. Yes, even your child. Wherever you are, I will be. Nothing will ever separate us. We are one. As you view the short camp video from last year, 
that I'll play in a few moments. Remember, they were making positive memories for these children, that we're trying to show them the face of God. Thank you, Houghton Wesleyan, for your prayers, your love, for your support. This camp is one way in which we can show all the world that we are all chosen ones. everyone who is a part of the Royal Family Camp staff to just to stand where you are 
And uh, then I'm going to ask uh, those of you who are prayer partners, as well as just anyone who would like, to try to gather around them as much as possible. And if you can lay hands on them, that's great. We want to offer a prayer for the staff. So if you're staff, please stand. And then others uh, gather around them. You may have to walk a little distance to get to them, but once they're up, uh, let's move around and try to connect with as many people as possible. We've got some more down front here, too. All right, let's pray. Heavenly Father, in this fallen, broken world, there is so much pain. It is especially grievous to us when this pain is felt by children. We are here today and this camp exists because we believe you are the the one who heals our pain. And this is our prayer for the children at this camp and for everyone who's involved in the camp. We pray, Father, for the staff who are here this morning and for all that they have done in preparation and all the energy and effort and time and everything that they will exert this coming week. We pray that you will give them strength. We pray that you will fill them with your grace. Give them hearts of love beyond themselves. More than anything, give them the spirit of Christ. Father, we pray for every camper. We pray that as they come to camp and as they are engaged in the loving embrace of this camp, we pray that you will release them from their fears and their pain. Fill them with security and healing and hope. And help them to know that all of this comes from you. We pray, Father, that you will uh, bring about the, the conversations that need to take place. We pray that you will put uh, people in circumstances where they can reveal the depths of your love to these children who need to experience it. And Father, we want to thank you today for the life change that you are going to do in this coming week and in the weeks to come We believe, Father, that you will transform sadness and hopelessness into beauty and loveliness. And we pray, Father, that these children will truly know that they are your beloved. Father, thank you for all that you're going to do this week in camp, for all the things that are going to happen because of this camp. And we ask all of this through the grace and mercy of Jesus Christ. Amen. Thank you. You may be seated. Our Old Testament scripture reading is Psalm 48. Great is the Lord and most worthy of praise in the city of our God, his holy mountain. Beautiful in its loftiness, the joy of the whole earth, like the heights of Saphon, is Mount Sion, the city of the great king. 
God is in her citadels. He has shown himself to be her fortress. When the kings joined forces, when they advanced together, they saw her and were astounded. They fled in terror. Trembling seized them there, pain like that of a woman in labor. You destroyed them like ships of Tarshish, shattered by an east wind. As we have heard, so we have seen. In the city of the Lord Almighty, in the city of our God, God makes her secure forever. Within your temple, O God, we meditate on your unfailing love. Like your name, O God, your praise reaches to the ends of the earth. Your right hand is filled with righteousness. Mount Zion rejoices. The villages of Judah are glad because of your judgments. Walk about Zion. Go around her. Count her towers. Consider well her ramparts. View her citadels, that you may tell of them to the next generation. For this God is our God forever and ever. He will be our guide even to the end. I invite the ushers to come forward and assist us in the giving of our tithes and offerings.
As we uh, join our hearts together in prayer this morning, I'm sure we all come with a variety of burdens and concerns and needs, and we want to remember those as best we can. As we pray together, if you'd like to come and use the altar rails, a place where you offer your prayers, please come and join me. Heavenly Father, we come today to declare that you are God. There is none like you in all the earth. 
heavens and the earth are full of your glory. And we come today to offer our prayers of worship and adoration and thanksgiving. We also come today to pour out before you those things that are in our lives that weigh heavily upon us. That area, that habit, that sin with which we struggle and cannot overcome. We bring these things before you once again today and ask that you will release us and heal us. Father, we pray for all who are here and in need today. Grief, suffering, pain, heartache, insecurity, uncertainty, failure, loss, worry, anxiety about today, fear about tomorrow... All of this is often so prevalent in our minds. Father, we pray for each other as we pray for ourselves. We pray, Father, for your grace and mercy upon all who are struggling with issues of health today. We think especially of Florence Tuber and Bunny Austin. Pray for Mike Raybuck and Jill Tyson, for Bruce Brenneman and Bev Rett. For Micah Christensen and Linda Roth and Dick Gould. And for Crystal Blake and Emily Cricklar and for others who may be on our hearts and our minds today. And we ask for your healing grace upon each of them. Father, we pray for our world. This world that you created and love. We continue to pray for places of the world where there have been disasters. and, And where there is war and violence. We pray for your healing presence. We pray, Father, for our brothers and sisters around the world who face persecution and opposition and ask that you would protect them and help them. We pray for those of our brothers and sisters who are serving you in places of the world that are not their home. And we think especially today of David and Heidi Heisinger and their family. And we ask that, we we thank you for giving them a a wonderful time of, of teaching and working in Cameroon. And as they prepare to return for two more years, we pray, Father, that you will bless them, that you will prepare them, and that you will use them in powerful ways, even as you work in their own lives. We pray that you will supply the finances they need, all the final preparations, transitions, Lord, all of this we pray for your grace and mercy upon them. Father, on this weekend when we celebrate our nation's independence, we give you thanks for all that we enjoy in this nation. Thank you for the freedom we have to come and worship today. Thank you for being able to express our faith with very few restrictions. Father, today we pray for our nation as a whole and we pray for uh, the leaders of our nation. We pray for President Obama and Vice President Biden, for the members of Congress, for the jurists who sit on the Supreme Court and other courts of our nation, for our governor and our state legislature, for all of our local government leaders. Father, we pray your blessing upon each of them. We pray that you will help them to be continually open to the promptings of your Holy Spirit. Help them to make decisions 
that are sensitive to the most vulnerable and the most needy among us. We pray, Father, that you will bring a new spirit of cooperation to every level of government so that pride and arrogance disappear and truth and justice and mercy and compassion rule the day. We pray, Father, for our nation that is facing some some great unrest right now. We pray that you will bring healing through your Holy Spirit. And we pray that your church will stand as a beacon of light and hope in the midst of the brokenness and the trouble and the difficulties of our nation. Father, we thank you for hearing our prayers today. We pray that you'll give us courage to trust you for every answer in your way, in your time. And we pray all of this through the wonderful, glorious name of our Lord Jesus Christ, the one who teaches us the model for prayer, which we now pray together. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread. And forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. Our New Testament scripture reading is John 10, verses 1 through 10. Following the scripture reading, children ages 2 through 5 are dismissed for Children's Church, which meets on the first floor of the Christian Education Building. Following the tradition of the church, I invite you to stand for the reading of the gospel. Very truly, I tell you, Pharisees, anyone who does not enter the sheep pen by the gate, but climbs in by some other way, is a thief and a robber. The one who enters by the gate is the shepherd of the sheep. The gatekeeper opens the gate for him, and the sheep listen to his voice. He calls his own sheep by name and leads them out. When he has brought out out all his own, He goes on ahead of them, and his sheep follow him because they know his voice. But they will never follow a stranger. In fact, they will run away from him because they do not recognize a stranger's voice. Jesus used this figure of speech, but the Pharisees did not understand what he was telling them. Therefore, Jesus said again, Very truly, I tell you, I am the gate for the sheep. All who have come before me are thieves and robbers, but the sheep have not listened to them. I am the gate. Whoever enters through me will be saved. They will come in and go out and find pasture. The thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy. I have come that they may have life and have it to the full.
Please be seated. As I read the 48th Psalm, there's a question that's going around in my mind. The psalmist begins by saying, Great is the Lord and worthy to be praised. And the question in my mind is, Is God truly worthy of our praise? Now, I know we would tend to say, if we're followers of Jesus, that, well, yes, of course. But is that really what we believe? Do we really believe deep in our hearts where we live, deep in the deepest resources of our being, in how we live our daily lives, is God really worthy to be praised? When life takes turns that we wish it didn't, is God worthy of our praise? When God frustrates us because he doesn't do what we want him to do in the, with the speed that we want him to do it, is God worthy of our praise? When we look around at this world and we see so much of it falling to pieces, is God really worthy of our praise? What fascinates me is that when we read this 48th Psalm and this question sort of is lingering there under the surface of what the psalmist, how the psalmist begins, his answer is, as we would expect, yes, of course, God is worthy of praise. We wouldn't expect anything less than that. But the reason God is worthy of praise sort of surprises me. Because he says, he talks about, he connects God's praise and God's worthiness to be praised with the fact that God dwells in Zion. God dwells in Jerusalem. God dwells in this great city. And we scratch our heads and say, what does that have to do with God being praised? What we would expect the psalmist to say is, God is worthy of praise because he has done this or he has done that. Or he's done that. And the psalmist says God's worthy of praise because he dwells in the city. Why is that so significant? Now you understand that Jerusalem is, when David says, let's make Jerusalem the capital of Israel, it's a, it's a shrewd political move. From the very beginning of Israel inhabiting the land of Canaan, they have been sort of divided by uh, tribal groupings. And, and it ends up later on that they end up dividing completely in these tribal groupings. But even already, they are divided into the tribes that are more in the north and the tribes that are more in the south. And what's interesting is that even at this point, when, when David becomes king, there is not this unified sense of the nation. And so David picks Jerusalem that's right in the middle. There is none of the tribes in the south and none of the tribes in the north can say that's our city. And then it becomes very territorial to one group or the other. 
It's right in the middle. No one really lays claim to it. And so it can become this neutral place that both groupings can connect with. And David uses that city to unify all of the tribes into one. Now, what's also interesting to me is that when you look around the ancient world, lots of cities have gods. In fact, it's not uncommon for a city to say, okay, people to say, let's establish the city. And once they establish the city, they say, now, what would be, what would be the best choice for our God? Let's pick one. And he'll protect us and he'll be our God that we worship. But here, David says, we have a God and we're going, to, we're going to establish this place as the center. This is where the ark is going to be. This is going to be the central place of worship. Ultimately where the tabernacle and the temple are. And God says, yeah, okay, that's going to be my place. It's not that the people come and say, look, God, we're so great. So you ought to come and live with us because we deserve it. God looks at Israel and says, you guys are some of the most undeserving people I can imagine. But I've chosen you, and I'm going to come and I'm going to dwell in your city. God voluntarily comes to Israel and says, I am going to dwell in time and space. I'm going to come and live among you. Does he live throughout the whole world? Yes. When he says he lives in the holy city, it doesn't mean that that's the only place God dwells. God is not limited by time and space, but God does choose to reside in time and space. And it's one of the most ludicrous things in the world to say that the great God of all the universe who's created everything, who, is, who has no boundaries at all to his nature, says, I'm going to connect myself in this place. Because I want to be with these people. I want to know them. I want them to know me. I want to have relationship with them. And the psalmist says... That's why we praise God. Because this God wants to come and live among us. He wants to be connected with us. And what we find here is that the God who, in, who is beyond space and time inhabits space and time. And it's an amazing thing to consider. But the psalmist goes on to say, because God dwells in this place, he protects us from our enemies. I, when you read this, this part of verses 4 to 7, and he talks about how the enemies came and they, and they, they came to, to attack the city and, and they ran. They turned tail and ran because they looked at what God had done and that God was there. And, I, and he says that they felt the pain of a woman in childbirth. And when I read that, I, I just, it's, it's got to be one of these amusing parts of Scripture that sometimes goes over our heads. But stop and think about it. These are ruthless warriors coming to attack the city of Israel. And the psalmist says, they're like women in labor. Now, when I was a kid and we really wanted to hurt somebody, one of our friends, you know, we would call them a sissy. And you almost get the sense that the psalmist is saying to them, you warriors think you're so great. You're nothing. You, you, you've got nothing here. 
We don't know exactly the context of this psalm. It doesn't tell us. But it makes me think about 1 Kings 19 when Assyria is, has surrounded Israel, surrounded uh, Jerusalem. And they are preparing to attack Jerusalem. And they're sending all kinds of threats against King Hezekiah. And the people come together and they pray for God to deliver them. And the next morning, they go out to the camp. And the, the thousands of Assyrian soldiers have vanished. Just disappeared. Because God came and scared the living daylights out of them. And they ran back home. Israel didn't do anything. They didn't fight. They didn't take up a sword. Nothing they did made that happen. It was God coming and scaring them to death. And they ran. And I sort of have that same image of the psalmist telling us this. Now granted... When God delivers his people, it doesn't mean he always rescues us. It doesn't mean that he eliminates all the problems from our lives. Not by any means. What it means is that the God who is beyond time and space, yet comes and inhabits space, is victorious. This, the Psalms are always the, an intersection of what's happened in the past, what's happening in the present, and what's going to happen in the future. And this psalm is both a description of what God's done in the past and a vision of what God's going to do in the future when the kingdom is established and God comes with all of his glory and makes everything, as N.T. Wright says, he sets everything to rights. Everything is made back to what he created it to be and beyond. And we see a glimpse of that. But the bottom line is God is in control. And no matter what it looks like in our world, no matter how bad things get, no matter how difficult the problems are, no matter how much pressure God's people feel against them, the one thing we know is that God is in control. God has conquered all the enemies. We may not be able to see it quite yet, but it's the foundation of everything we believe. It's why we're followers of God. There's there's no, it's not hanging in the balance We don't feel the pressure of the enemy against God and his people and wonder, I wonder if God can handle this. We haven't looked back and read all the great things God's done in scripture. And then, but we wonder, is is God past his prime? Can can he still handle this stuff? Has has it gotten a little bit too much? I've been watching Wimbledon, you know, tennis has been going on. And, and, you know, some of the great players, they're, they're inching near the end of their career. And they look a lot more vulnerable. And sometimes I think we may have that vision of God. No, God, yeah, he did it in the past. But, you know, he he was in his prime in the past. But, you know, now I don't know if he can handle all this. He can handle it. Our God who, he says, does not change. He does not grow old. He does not grow weary. He can handle it. He has conquered the enemies. He wins. You read to the, get to the end of the book. You read the last page. God wins. And that's the foundation of our faith. Even when the pressure is mounting against us, even when the opposition is coming, even when we look around the world and we scratch our heads and think, really? Boy, it doesn't seem like it. God is in control. But it doesn't mean that God will always save his people from hardship or difficulties or pain or struggles. In fact, the very fact that we are God's people is going to mean there's going to be opposition just naturally coming against us because we live in this world that is opposed to God. 
But one of the things that happens when the opposition comes is we get a chance to see God at work. You look at verse 8, and and the writer of verse 8 says, in essence, we heard all about what God has done in the past. Now we've seen it. We've experienced it. There's a big difference between knowing about God and knowing God. There's a big difference between knowing about something has happened and actually being in the middle of it happening. I grew up in southern Indiana. We don't have many snow-capped mountains in southern Indiana. All right, we have none. We have a little hill out there and we go, ooh, look at that mountain. I'd read about snow-capped mountains. I'd never seen them. I'd never experienced it. They seemed pretty awesome to me, but, you know, it was all theory until we moved to Oregon. And I've told you about this before. The first time we were driving down the Columbia River Gorge, there are... It's hard to describe some of the scenes in the Pacific Northwest if you've never been there. But they are some of the most awe-inspiring vistas that you will ever experience. And one of those is driving along the Columbia River Gorge. And you come around this curve and right in front of you is Mount Hood. I mean, even as I'm talking to you about it, the hair on the back of my neck is standing up. And I, I mean, there are times, I've made that trip dozens of times. And every time, it... it just does something to me. I, I remember one time I almost had to pull off the side of the road because it, I was just so inspired. I couldn't take my eyes off of this mountain instead of put, keeping them on the road. And all of a sudden I began to feel something of what it is to view a snow-capped mountain and all of the majestic nature of it. And there is something about being in a place in life where we get to experience who God is. And I, sometimes I wonder if one of the reasons we don't have the kinds of experiences with God that other people do is because we're, we're so enamored with life being easy. You know, we want life to be no problems, no struggles, no difficulties. And in fact, quite frankly, and I'll also, I won't speak for you, I'll speak for myself. I get a little frustrated with God when I have to face some difficult things. But when you read through the scriptures, when you read through the, the stories of people through the ages, when you read through the stories of the church today, some of the most amazing things are happening in the places where there is the most pressure and the most opposition Someone from the Lilius Trotter Institute that has begun here in Houghton and ministry to Muslims handed me a little booklet a few weeks ago about uh, praying 30 days of prayer for the Muslim world. And as I'm using that as a prayer guide every day, one of the things that keeps coming up is that there, there are these miracles that happen and it's changing people's lives. People in the Muslim world see dreams and visions and, and these astounding miracles happen. And I'm reading through this and I'm thinking, why don't those happen to us? And I wonder if part of it is because they're in the middle of pressure. They're in the middle of some things that we have a hard time comprehending And the miraculous work of God in those circumstances changes things for people. And I suspect for us, we might not pay that much attention to it. I know for myself, my prayer is typically, Lord, don't let me face any difficulties. 
And then I wonder, how come we don't see any miracles? Miracles happen because there are difficulties. If you don't feel the need to be rescued, you won't be rescued. Earlier this week, uh, Brianna Austin, Pastor Kevin and Cindy's daughter, she's in Zambia working there as a nurse intern this summer. And I, I read an email that she sent. And she talked about how it's been a great experience, but how there have been some difficulties. But one of the things that grabbed my attention was she said something to the effect that because of the difficulties I'm facing, the language barriers, just the struggles of being in Zambia and seeing all the stuff people go through, being alone by myself, she said, it's really just me and God. And I'm having to rely on God so much more than I would have otherwise. And I sense God working in me because I'm in this place. And I'm learning some lessons about life and about myself and about God that I'm not sure I would have learned if I, hadn't, if I wasn't here. And maybe, maybe the calling of God on us that would change how we praise God and how we see God and, and how God is deserving of our praise might happen if we we're much more willing to put ourselves in places where God could prove himself to us. Now, I don't mean we go around looking for trouble. You know, there's an old Bill Cosby thing where he learned uh, karate or judo and, and he was so confident of himself, he said he walked down alleys with $20 bills hanging out of his pockets just waiting for someone to attack him. That's not what we're doing. We're not going around saying, Lord, help me to find the most dangerous, difficult circumstance I can. The truth of the matter is, if we are committed to following God and wanting what God wants, trouble will find us well enough. And in those moments, instead of, instead of complaining that God hasn't spared us from difficulties, to say, Lord, what are you going to do here? How are you going to teach me? What are you going to do in me? Reveal yourself. And let me know you. If our hearts are really tuned to praising God, then we begin to see God in a different light when trouble comes. Because when our, when, our, when our mindset is about trying to protect ourselves, trying to make life easy for ourselves, we have a tendency to whine and complain when difficulty arises. But if our focus is on God and saying, Lord, I'm just looking for every way I can to praise you and to glorify you and to honor you, then when difficulty comes, we begin to see him far more clearly involved in circumstances than we would have otherwise. The end result of this psalm, he says, is that ultimately it's about telling next generations who God is. I'm intrigued by verses 12 and 13 because he, he says, you know, look around the city. Check it out. It's almost like he's saying, look, go kick some tires. You know, go, go, go in the basement. Do a little digging. Look around. There's no secrets here. There's nothing here that I'm hiding from you. You look around and you tell me where anything in my kingdom has a flaw. You tell me if you see anything about, about how, how my kingdom is established that's less than what it ought to be. You look around. 
And once you've discovered how secure and safe and, and right my kingdom is, then you, there'll be something in you that bubbles up to say, I want everybody else to know that. I want everyone else to know who God is and what God has done. And we start talking to other people about it. We start describing it to them. And who are these next generations that we describe it to? Well, I think it's certainly people who don't know. It's certainly people in the world who've never heard of Christ. We, we owe it to them to know Christ in their life so that they can experience the joy of, of Christ. He says in verses 9, 10, 11, he talks about how we ponder the, 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 the Hebrew word is chesed. It, it's hard to describe it. Often it's talked about unfailing love or, or steadfast, uh, his, his kindness, his, his, his goodness. It, it's hard to pin it down. It's such a rich word. It, it is the fact that maybe it's like this. God always does the right thing in the right way at the right time. And he never falters from that. God is always loving, always good. Everything that God does, even if it looks like punishment, what is motivating it and behind it is the goodness of God. And he said, you, you begin to ponder that and, and you want to tell people about it. And he talks about rejoicing in justice, in God's judgments that are always right and good and true. This is our God. This is what we want to tell people. Unfortunately, sometimes we, we get the gospel mixed up with our, the social norms that we think are a part of what it means to be a follower of Jesus. And they, we begin crossing lines and, and we begin equating these specific things that we think are, are, are important. And they probably are important, but they're not the gospel necessarily. I remember hearing not too long ago, uh, maybe 10, 15 years ago, of stories about missionaries going different places of the world in the 30s and 40s and 50s, and particularly missionaries from some more conservative churches like ours, and, and going into these places and sharing the gospel. But along with sharing the gospel, they've also, they also told people that the gospel is really tied up into some of the, the Western ways in which we think. And so... There was a lot of talk, not just about who Jesus is and, and his saving grace in our lives, but also about the way we dress and the kinds of things that we do and don't do and the rules and regulations that were part of our culture. And what ended up happening in, then in the 80s and 90s when new missionaries were going to these places, the, the, the people of those nations were saying, we're not comfortable with these missionaries because they don't believe and practice those same things anymore. And these things we were taught were the gospel. That you dress a certain way and, and these kinds of things you do and don't do. And these missionaries go to movies. And these missionaries don't dress the way we think they should dress. And these missionaries uh, go out and, and have fun on Sunday. And we do all these things that we were told that you're not supposed to do. And they're rejecting these missionaries. And sometimes it's so easy to, to cross over and to think that it's the same, but it's not. So I, I think what we have to figure out is how do we communicate the gospel to people who don't know the gospel? That's what I love about Royal Family Kids Camp. I think Royal Family does an awesome job of 
sharing the gospel in a way that these young people can get. You saw in the video all the wild and crazy things that were going on. That's a big part of camp. Because that connects with these children. And they need to know that, that Jesus is about every part of their life. And that Jesus is probably bigger than the image they have in their head of Jesus. The whole point of camp is saying we want you to, to see Jesus in a way that you can understand, that you can grasp. And we are called to do that same thing. But it's not just for people out there who don't know. I suspect when you think about next generation, I think that means our children and our youth who are in here. I think one of our first callings is about what we're doing with our own children, our own youth. How are we helping them encounter the gospel in a way that they can hear? And that may be different than the way that we want them to hear it. One of the things we talk about in, in preaching classes is there is a difference between saying what people need to hear and saying what we want to say. It's not the same. And if we're going to share the gospel with people, if we're going to help people grasp who God is, we've got to say it in a way that people can grasp. And that may mean it has a bearing on what we do when we gather for worship on Sundays. It may mean it has a bearing on the scripture translation that we use. It may have a bearing on, on how we talk about Jesus the kind of music we do, what our classes look like. Because our goal is not, we want to make sure people, uh, that people learn the same way we learned. Our goal is, we want to connect the gospel to people so they can hear it. I mean, isn't that what Jesus does? What God does with the Israelites all the time? And Jesus, he tells stories and parables. And, and who opposes him the most? The people who have heard it over and over and over and over again. And one of the reasons they get upset with Jesus is because he's not telling it the right way. He's not saying it the right way. He's not telling the stories the right way. But Jesus' goal is to help people connect the gospel in a way that they can hear and understand. And that's our calling too. And if our focus is really on praising God, that he is our focus, he's the goal, he's everything that all that we do is about, then we're much more interested in how can people know him the way we know him rather than how can people think about him the way we think about him. And so it's not so much we want people to think the way we think, we want people to think the way God thinks and see things the way God sees them and hear things the way God Says them. You come to verse 14 and the psalmist says, after he's describing all of this, going through all this, he says, this is our God. This is our God. And he is with us, guiding us, leading us forever. Is God worthy of praise? The psalmist says yes. Understanding that praise is not just what we say with our mouths, what we sing with our mouths. Praising God is about all of our lives. Praising God is not just what we do on Sunday morning, as important as that is. 
It's what we do when we leave here. And one of the things that we, we often ask the catechism class uh, when we meet with them and talk about the church is we, one of the questions we ask them is, where's the church on Tuesday? And they look at us with a very confused expression. Does somebody pick up the building and move it? It's right here. It's always right here. And of course, the point is, the church is where we are. And the witness that we have is not just what we do here on Sunday. It's what we do on Monday and Tuesday and Wednesday and every day of the week. And wherever we go, in our homes and places where we work and out where we are around. It's all about praising God. And the God who has become one of us. Emmanuel, God with us. Wants to fill us and change us and transform us so that wherever we go and whatever we do, our lives are are a sacrifice of praise to God. And we want God's words to be our words, God's thoughts to be our thoughts. The way God treats other people, that's how we want to treat people. The way God thinks about other people, that's how we want to think about other people. That's what it means to praise God, to live a life of praise to God. And it's through that kind of life that other people see the joy of Christ in us. They see the transforming power of Christ in us and say, that's what I want. I want that too. And as people come to know Christ, more and more praise is offered to God. So is God worthy of our praise? The psalmist says, definitely yes. What are our, what are our lives declaring? That we trust him enough that he is worthy to be praised. Holy Father, we thank you for your grace to us. Thank you for the work that you've done in our lives and what you want to do through us in this world. Father, may our lips, our minds, our actions, our attitudes, everything about us be a sacrifice, an offering of praise to you that we might know you and that others might know you too. Through Christ we pray. Amen. Join us as we sing together.
a benediction. May the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord make his face shine upon you and be gracious unto you. May the Lord turn his face toward you and give you peace. Amen.